The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? That's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings of the New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings of New Zealand Show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Today I'm talking with Richard Small, the CEO of Waikato Aero Club and the president of the Royal New Zealand Aero Club. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into flying in the first place and when you started? Yeah, well, like a lot of people, I always wanted to fly and... Uh I had a flying lesson in my early 20s and then um, bought a house, got married, got a mortgage and had kids and for a long time had uh, had the time to fly but not the money and then as I built my career I had the money to fly but not the time and right. uh, in the end I thought you're a long time dead so just get it done and uh, so I started training at Waikato Aero Club in 1998 and. Uh, took 12 months or 11 months actually to get my uh, PPL yep. and uh, just been flying around for fun on my PPL ever since. It's oh, great. Great. So what did you learn on? Um, started, first lesson was in a 152 but it just wasn't big enough for me and, and the instructor at the time we were rubbing shoulders the whole time so I moved into a 172 and um, went right through PPL and that and then since then have picked up a number of different um, type ratings and um, just carried on with with flying from there. Okay, and you've got um, quite a position within the Aero Club now, haven't you? Yeah, well, yeah, I do. I sort of um, got involved in the in the committee uh, probably in the early two thousands, and uh, when you stay around there long enough, you eventually get to be the club president. And with that, at the time, went the the role of the chief executive, which you have to have because we we run part one three five operations, um, which is you know, air transport. Yep. Um, and CAA demands that you have a CEO. And in those days, the workload wasn't that high. But these days, with um, about 30 full-time students on board, um, the CEO job is more or less full-time, just managing um, Tertiary Education Commission and NZQA and StudyLink um, 
in the trust fund that we have to run for our students' money, so it's fully protected, right. um, and all the administration and, and general dog's body work that goes with that. So it has become quite extensive. Right. Okay. But my drive for doing it still is my passion for flying, and uh, done quite a few things over the years. Just, um, but my main interest these days is towing gliders at Matamata and um, and buzzing around in the Twin Comanche, which I own a share of, which is a lot of fun. Right. Okay. Um, you mentioned uh, the air transport side of it. What, what the, is the Air Club doing there? Um, we've, well, we've always done um, bits and pieces. Probably only amounts to a bit under 200 hours a year of actual commercial flying. But um, um, the Waikato Regional Council for some aerial inspections, um, occasionally a little bit of work for DOC and one or two other government agencies. Oh, um, the backbone of it is, is uh, monthly inspections for vector gas, where in the upper half of the North Island um, they are required to do an aerial inspection of the gas pipeline once a month. Yep. Um, so we fly that in various sectors, and uh, that's just to ensure that no one's putting a digger through the gas pipeline or some farmer's not shoving a post through it or something yep. like that. So yep. that's, that's the most regular piece of work, and um, we also do quite a lot of aerial photography from time to time depending on the time of year and, and what's going on okay. um, and the Waikato Times if there's major floods or disasters and they want an aerial photo um, then often they'll give us a call and out we go. Right. It's quite fascinating these days the uh, the photo and the story are normally on the website before the plane lands the photographers can send it all from their cameras now so yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting actually isn't it? Yeah it is. Yeah um, and the uh, flying school side of things, that's um, something that's really come up in the last, what, 20 years or so? We've been quietly building it over the last 12 years or so. We originally got involved with the Nelson Marlborough Institute of Technology because they were the largest flight trainer in New Zealand. They didn't do any training themselves. They subcontracted it to organisations like ourselves. And we've quietly built that up from uh, initially four or five students to having about... Um, about 30 in the system at any one time at various stages of training moving through in cohorts and that works very well. Um, we keep it kind of low profile, um, we get enough applicants to fill our courses, enough applicants of suitable quality yep. um, and we've always been a little bit of a under the radar type operation but um, highly rated by NZQA and uh, our pass rates are above the national averages for what we do. So um, we're, we're pretty happy with how that goes. And this is training in the uh, the uh, Robins? And um, yeah, we train them in a variety of aircraft. They'll start off either in our brand new um, Technam LSAs or in, in the Robins or the Alphas as we call them, because um, oh, yes. they're New Zealand built ones. And um, then they move on into the four-seaters IFR and then finally um, into the twin and the instructor rating. So it's two years full-time right? and it's pretty hard out. They, uh, they don't get the breaks that the universities get, even though we're theoretically a tertiary institution, yeah. we work them pretty hard and um, and get them through as quickly as as is um, practicably possible. Right, and they can go out the door from your place straight into an airline sort of job. Um, yeah, I mean the school's still out on things like that, like the multi-crew pilot license, where low air pilots get straight into the right seat of a jet after some sim training. Um, but uh, most people go through the instructor strand and they still build hours until their um, experience levels are of interest to the airlines and that's still the most favoured way through and will yep. remain so for the next few years. The multi-crew pilot licence may come in 
to New Zealand. We're not currently, the legislation doesn't exist here for it to, to uh, go ahead. And Air New Zealand <coughs> has some interest in it, um, but um, they're not knocking the door down to get into it. Okay, and of course, aero clubs traditionally have always been uh, private pilots who are more socially flying as well. And how's that side of the uh, the whole club going? Uh, that side's holding up pretty well. Um, obviously, with the um, um, economic climate that we have, it's it's down a little bit. Um, <clears throat> but we're working working pretty hard on on building that up and um, and making it an attractive place to come and and. Uh, and fly and have fun and, and enjoy the fruits of aviation. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and we're working very hard on encouraging young people into into the uh, flying environment, um, either for sport or and recreation or as a career. We don't really mind either. We just yeah. want to encourage people to fly, you know, and, and get into it. Exactly. Is it a good place to fly from, Hamilton? Yeah, it is. It's pretty busy, um, but we. Um, in training in the air traffic control environment, you certainly lose any fear of using the radio and and flying in um, heavy traffic, as it were. So basically, when you when you train with that environment from day one, um, you have no fear of it, and you develop a lot of confidence in, in handling those situations. Um, yeah. So at the Aero Club, we're we're very heavily involved with um, the Young Eagles program, which is. Um, sponsored by Flying New Zealand, Royal New Zealand Aero Club, which is my other passion at the moment. Right. And um, so we're doing what we can to supplement the grey hair in the room, if you want, because any pilot gathering you go to is heavily dominated by grey hair or no hair. <laughs> <coughs> and um, so, you know, we, we, we've kind of got two parts of flying in New Zealand, really, at the moment. There's the young eagles and then there's the bald eagles, if you want. <laughs> um, and, and we're trying to bridge that gap a little bit and heavily investing in young people um, knowing that they're not all going to take it up as a hobby straight away but hopefully they'll do what a lot of us did and once they get into their, their 40s or whatever they'll they'll rekindle the passion once they get themselves in a financial position to right. to pursue the hobby. So Actually that's a, an interesting area. Has the, um, the stream of young people coming into uh, Aero Club flying is it still as strong as it used to be, or has it dwindled off because there's so much other things out there for them? The problem with flying is it's not an instant gratification thing. Um, you have to be prepared to work at it to get the rewards. Um, the, you know, the, it's competency-based and knowledge-based, and you have to be prepared to work at acquiring both. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the Gen Z people um, typically aren't oriented towards that. So we don't get so many kids sitting out the airfield wanting to wash aeroplanes to earn a ride with an instructor or a private pilot who's going out for a burn. Um, so we have to find different ways of, of making people aware of aviation because, I mean, the biggest buzz out of doing Young Eagles is to see the smile on the kid's face when they get out of the plane. It's fantastic yeah. and they get so enthused and, and they're just dead keen and they drag their parents along and, and actually we've... We've got a couple of young eagles' parents learning to fly now because they've caught the bug as well. Wow, that's cool. So it's an interesting thing, and it's it's a very very um, rewarding thing to be involved with. And um, so th the answer to your question is no, they don't come and sit at the airport fence anymore, and they're not lined up to go for flights. Um, but the ones that do come, 
um, tend to be the ones that that will stick at it. Right. Um, right. So you know, um, just introducing them to all the things you can do at aviation and all the competition stuff and the skills-based stuff and and um, there aren't as many sort of camaraderie type things that used to happen. Um, and some of that is because the aero clubs out of the airfields um, no longer run their bars until 10 or 11 o'clock at night. You know, the drink driving laws yep. had an effect on aviation as they did on every other sporting club. Yep. Um, and so you no longer, um, you know, make your money over the bar. And, and rugby clubs are the same. You know, you have to find other ways. And that's one of the reasons we started a full-time flight school is, is how can we generate enough money to stay on on Hamilton Airport, which is getting more and more expensive to be at. Right. Um, and, and the answer is to, to you know, just build on the things that we already do well, and that's to teach people to fly. So we decided to get into the career stuff as well as the recreation. And it's very good because it gives us fleet utilisation during the week for the flight school, and we have really good equipment for um, for our club members to use in the weekend. Right. right. So it works well. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess the fact that Hamilton's... Um, has been an international airport for a while and it's got the big fences and um, you know that whole international airport kind of aura about it that might put put the younger people off a little bit too I guess would it? Um, I'm not sure I haven't actually asked any of them about that but you know what we do do is if, if anyone pulls up in the club car park you know like plane spotting as opposed to train spotting yeah um, you know we'll invite them in come and sit on the deck and watch the planes instead of having to look through the through the wire fence and all the rest of it, and um, you know, just try and encourage people to, to get involved to whatever extent they want to. Yeah, it is. A, you know, I mean, driving around the airport, it is a bit driving like driving around the outside of a prison. But, yeah. but in the modern environment, that's what we're stuck with, and you know, it's just the way it is. Um, any regional airport now that's handling even just you know local domestic flights. Um, you know, the, the security requirements are just getting more and more, and that's not going to change. Um, that, that will get um, more stringent as time goes on. Yep. Um, even though I don't know why you'd want to hijack an aircraft in New Zealand, because they only put enough fuel in them to get to where they want to go now. They, yep. they don't put enough in for the return trip, never mind to go to Australia and, exactly. and <laughs> knock over the Sydney Sky Tower or whatever it is. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. it just um, is illogical, but I guess then so are the people that are tempted to hijack aircraft, you know. They don't think they just do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, the best case scenario is to hop in a um, ATR and say, "I'm taking this thing to Invercargill." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a good bike for I think. Well, Invercargill has its attractions in the bluff oyster season, but you know, um, why you would want to hijack an aircraft in New Zealand, I have no idea. No, that's right. And a lot of it's driven by the RKO requirements. Um, you know, the international requirements that, you know, if you've got a regional airport with turbine aircraft flying out of it, then you need security. Yeah. And, and particularly if you've got jets. But again, you know, where are you going to hijack a jet to from New Zealand? Uh, yeah, on the so domestic side of things, anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, uh, let's take this a little bit wider because you mentioned that you have the interest in the Royal New Zealand Aero Club as yes. well. Yeah. And uh, you're actually the president. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I just became the president at AeroGM this year. And, um, there's, there's a lot of really good stuff happening there, and, and um, my opinion is that RNZAC has never um, <clears throat> really had the profile that it should in terms of um, what what we do for um, recreational aviation in New Zealand. So RNZAC is an affiliation of 43 clubs now, 
um, aero clubs around New Zealand and um, traditionally has been the parent body um, for the aero clubs and has always done advocacy work with CAA and Airways and the Met Service, um, which is work that's largely unseen um, and, and is time consuming and you know you have to learn lots of things that you thought you never would have to learn about rules and how the system works and how to go about things and how to make submissions and um, you know how to work really in the interests of recreational pilots and recreational aviation because when when new rules are made um, there's often unintended consequences because they're made for a certain sector but the flow-on effect to other sectors can sometimes be um, very disadvantageous so right. You know, we see it as one of our major functions is to um, is to keep an eye on that on behalf of, of the aero clubs. But, you know, we can't do it all ourselves. We need input so that we know what our member clubs are, are thinking. Yep. And um, we need to do a better job of, of being in touch with our member clubs to, to make sure that we know um, where they're at rather than just saying, here it is, comment. You know, we need to do a little bit of work on following up and saying, hey, you know, it's about time you let us know what you thought. Yep. Um, so that we can then, you know, represent the clubs at at, at the ministerial level, even, um, right. but certainly at CAA and, and airways level, so that we're working in the interests of recreational aviation. Um, so that's one thing that we we do a lot of. Um, Young Eagles is a big push for us, um, you know, as we've already talked about, as a national body. Um, we're doing quite a lot of work encouraging more clubs to get involved. We have 15 involved at the moment nationwide, um, but you know we'd like to see that move up um, to you know 75 or 80 percent of the clubs. Yeah, yeah. Um, any any club with a with a high school nearby really um, has an opportunity to to move into it, and, and it's good because it's like a triple-edged sword. You know, it gets new people into aviation. Um, it, it gives um, our pilots a reason to go flying. And it puts some hours on club aircraft that, that they wouldn't otherwise get. So you know, it's 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 win win win, and um, and, and we just want to see it get up and running. And 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 um, we're developing um, a toolbox, if you like, for new clubs that are interested in it. So we can kind of hand them a package of stuff and say, well, here's what's worked in other places, and take it and modify to your own environment and, and get on with it. Um, so that's that's a real big push. And, and we're also um, working with the trend towards LSA, light sport aircraft, yeah. and, and microlights, because flying your traditional Cessnas and Pipers and everything is getting very expensive. Um, and, and the modern LSAs and microlights that come out of the factories typically in Europe, um, beautiful aircraft, highly capable, um, quite fast. They're no longer the string and paper and wood um, bits of stuff that used to fly around 20 or 30 years ago and to a large extent to the general public they're, they're indistinguishable from from the traditionally commercially manufactured aircraft except that none of them have any more than two seats right. so um, you know if it's just you and a buddy or you and your wife or you and your son or you and your daughter um, you know that's the way it's going and, and the operating costs are something like half that of a traditional four-seat aircraft, right. um, depending on how you count the operating costs, because a lot of people forget they've got to buy a new engine after a while and they don't put money aside for that. But, right. um, but in general terms, that's the way that recreational aviation is going, and um, 
and you know we need to move with that and RNZAC probably um, is a little bit slower off the mark than they should have been in terms of that um, but we're catching up fast okay. and um, certainly working on um, making microlite certificates available through RNZAC clubs. We have that already but the system's not as user friendly as it could be. Yep. So we're doing a lot of work on that right now um, to get that sorted so that so that it's easier for particularly our smaller clubs who who are struggling for survival in the modern, modern environment um, to for them to stay viable and stay in the RNZAC network because the power is in the numbers when yes. you're talking with with the agencies in Wellington <coughs> and we currently represent 3,200 pilots in New Zealand right. which is where the, we're the largest recreational organisation by by some distance and um, so that gives us a little bit of um, a little bit of clout um, that we need to use wisely yep. um, rather than being totally reactionary and, and oppositional um, we've, we've been developing relationships um, at CAA and other places over the last three or four years um, with a view to working alongside people rather than saying you can't bring this rule in because it's you know, going to kill everybody or yep. or kill off the Euro clubs or whatever. So we, we're trying to work alongside them and just um, uh, do things in a reasonable way. And, and I have to say that, that the recent restructuring at CAA has resulted in... Uh, very refreshing approach from the regulator yep. and um, they're, they're much more approachable um, and much more willing to listen than, than they have been under previous regimes and when we're finding that um, very refreshing and we're finding that progress made, gets made a lot faster than it used to um, and, and we've had a big win with the um, recreational pilot licence, um, the way that's structured and the way the medicals work with that. Um, we've gotten rid of all of the ongoing costs that used to be in the system. So now instead of having to pay 130 bucks every two years to have your medical attached to your licence, that, that's no longer the case. So the only money you have to pay now, other than your flying costs, um, is the initial issue of the recreational pilot licence. Right. So And currently that's only a licence you can get by moving across from already having a PPL or a CPL. Yep. Um, because the medical standard is, is different. Um, we're, we're now working um, and have some hope that before the end of this year that you will be able to train up to an RPL so um, you won't need to go and get your class 2 medical from an aviation medical examiner you'll be able to to get your RPL um, just using the DL9 um, passenger endorsement medical that you use for driving a bus for example yep. or a taxi so you have to meet that medical standard there are restrictions on where you can fly and how you can fly, um, but by and large it will suit a lot of people and it's a growing market, particularly as our grey-haired pilots get older and find it more and more difficult to meet the Class 2 standard. True, yeah. yeah. And people wanting to get into aviation in their 50s and 60s who perhaps might not quite meet the Class 2 standard, um, then, um, but there's no reason why you know, they aren't safe enough to fly. Exactly. And, and it's all risk-based these days, so if you only have one passenger, the risk of... Um, killing lots and lots of people if you have a heart attack while you're flying is much smaller. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's kind of, I mean, that's a brutal way of putting it, but that's kind of, if, if you want to summarise the risk-based assessment, that's how it is. It's, yes. it's how much of a risk are you to life? And um, so by putting restrictions on basically healthy people, I mean, you've still got to pass the medical with your, with your GP. 
um, and they're not going to give it to you if if you've got you know untreated high blood pressure and and you know you've just come out of a triple bypass and all the rest of it. So yep. you know the standards to be met. Yes. So you, you know your likelihood of having a medical event that's going to result in a disaster while you're flying is is very low still. So um, but but yeah the, the new risk based system is is a lot more sensible than the old compliance based system. Right. So it's good. But in the flip of the coin though, the, on the commercial pilot side and the um, I think the PPL as well, the, the the medical costs are going up, aren't they? For for pilots. Yeah, they are, you know, and, and there's quite a debate about um, how that's based. Yes, currently every every time you renew your medical you have to pay a $313 fee to CAA as an application fee before you go and see the doctor. Right. Um, and that's, um, as far as the flying community is concerned, that's wrong. Um, the proper process was gone through and it was a Treasury-approved process and all the rest of it. Um, so we have a number of issues with that. Um, some of it is is how um, CAA are conducting the audits, if you like, on how their medical examiners work. Yep. Um, the, the Class 2 licence for private flying um, is a very high standard. Um, and what we want to do is, is impress more on CAA that anyone holding a PPL only has recreational privileges. We can't fly for hire or reward. We can't even have anyone else pay for our flying. Yep. We have to pay for it ourselves. We can share it with other people in the aircraft on a on a uh, pro rata basis. If there's four in the aircraft, then you can you can all contribute a quarter each to the cost of the flight. Yep. Um, but that's it. So, and really, all of the medical stuff for the commercial th- part of it um, is is for pilots who are flying for hire or reward. So then the argument is who is the beneficiary of the medical is it the pilot or is it the traveling public yep. because it used to be funded um, by um, a ticket levy on air transport and uh, now the pilots have to pay for it themselves so some airlines pay for it for their pilots other airlines say you know you have to turn up but really the application fee spilling into PPL is is a result of it being established for CPL and and for the airline pilots. Um, so the way we see it is the beneficiary of that medical standard is the travelling public, because if the pilots didn't have medicals, they couldn't fly the airliners. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so we think that, that that funding should go back through um, the passenger levy for commercial guys, and we think that um, given that, that the Class Two medical is quite a high standard to meet, and the ME1s that, that sign you off as meeting that standard, the medical examiners, um, are aviation trained doctors and that for recreational flying um, that CAA should accept that when you've been signed off by an ME1 that you are medically fit to fly because you've still got to do the ECGs and all the rest of it yep. um, and, and, and um, you know it's, it's a reasonably high standard so we think that the ME1's opinion should be accepted for recreational flyers or for non-commercial flyers, um, as, as some of the recreational organisations like to call themselves, um, and and just accept it, and then that does away with the need to, you know, um, audit and troll through and involve, you know, the really expensive consultants that they use sometimes to review um, PPL medicals, yeah. and um, 
you know, at, at the moment they troll through and and it has been known for them to, to pull a medical that was issued five years before um, and then the subsequent ones after that because there was something wrong with an assessment five years ago. Well, you know, come on, guys, for recreational flying, that's that's just a bit ridiculous. That's crazy. Five years down the track, if the guy's still flying and healthy, you know, yeah. then that's the proof that the ME1's assessment was was um, good. Yes. Yeah. And um, so, you know, we just, we just would like to see... Um, the ME1's professional opinion recognised and then that would do away with a lot of the cost um, that goes with the recreational class 2 medical Um, so yeah we think that that should in the end be nothing Um, and and particularly when CAA moves on to a a web based medical application form and and the web based um, reporting so that you don't have to. It's at the moment it's paper based and it's it's just a nightmare. Yeah. Um, so it should all be online. Okay. In this day and age, and CAA are moving towards that, and and you know they're to be congratulated for for thinking in that direction, just not moving fast enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know we'll be we'll be lobbying more and more in that direction on behalf of recreational pilots to to get that fee dispensed with. Um, we think it's just flawed, right. and um, and there's no need for it. So. I get the impression I'm not a pilot, and I'm not very involved with CAA at all. But I get the impression that they do actually listen to groups like yourselves and, and take stuff on board. They're not like most government departments who just you know go do their own thing. Well, again, it's a refreshing change change with the um, with the current CAA setup um, and the and, and the um, director. Graham Harris, who's who's been in the job for a couple of years, and um, and the n- relatively new chairman as well, have have quite a different approach, you know, and 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 they do listen. Um, it doesn't mean you always get your way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> certainly not. Um, but they do listen, and and they are more reasonable. So access to to that level at CAA is um, is much better than I understand it has ever been before. Right. And uh, well, certainly in recent times, um, and and the benefits are starting to flow through um, to to recreational aviation. So obviously, the medical fee is the current big um, big problem. Yeah. And the other one at the moment too is you know recreational pilots having to pay to get their weather reports. Ah yes. So um, as part of RNZAC, we're affiliated with the New Zealand Aviation Federation, which represents. Um, just about all of recreational flying, including the parachute guys and the glider guys and yeah. the modelers and, and the sport guys and um, and all the rest of it. Um, so we, we had a delegation and uh, meet with the Minister of Transport, Jerry Brownlee, um, in early July, was it? No, late June. And, um, you know, we talked about that. Um, you know, why was aviation picked on when... You know the the marine forecast is free, the trampers forecast is free, everybody else's forecast is free except aviation. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there's still some discussion going on about that, and the minister has um, given instructions to um, his department and to CAA um, to work with Met Service and see if there can be some arrangement come to. Okay. Um, and our contention is that you know Met Service is probably collecting. Um, Thirty or forty thousand dollars a year out of that at the moment, 
Um, and, and the minute someone has a, a, a prang because they've not got the correct weather report before they fly, yeah. um, the cost of the economy will be many, many times that. Absolutely. So um, we think that it's a, it's a huge negative. Um, it's encouraging people to not get the information that they need yeah. um, before they, they go for a fly, particularly cross-country. Local flights, yeah, not so bad, but um, you know, if you're heading from the North Island to the South Island, um, then you shouldn't just look out the window and go. You should yeah. properly prepare. Yeah. And uh, and those things are, um, are are encouraged not to happen by by charging for them. And some pilots that can well afford it just deliberately don't get it because it's a screw you mentality, right. which we right. don't encourage because that's unsafe. Yeah. Um, and it's the same with some airways fees too. You know. Um, Airways Corporation wanting to charge for um, VFR traffic moving through controlled airspace is, um, is a real negative as far as we're concerned for safety because uh, you know some of the cowboys out there are just going to turn their transponders off and say screw you and fly through it anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. And Airways look totally shocked when you mention that and say well nobody would do that would they? And you say well yeah you know people do that already <laughs> just because of the screw you factor and again yeah. We actively discourage that as an organisation because it's extremely unsafe. Um, but the more money they charge, the more people are uh, are going to bend or ignore the rules and, and do it. And yeah. that just results in unsafe situations. And again, you know, Airways is looking at recovering sixty or $70,000 a year um, by charging three bucks a time that you cross an airspace boundary. Um, and our view is that the first time that someone has a prang or there's a near miss with an airliner or something because someone's turned their transponder off um, or is flying illegally in controlled airspace, um, you know, the cost of that will be far, far more than, than airways will, will recover in many years of, of collecting uh, yeah. airspace fees. So, so we're working on that as well. Um, a lot of stuff going on at the moment. It's, it's pretty exciting to be involved in it all. <clears throat> but it also stretches us because, uh, you know, we're all we're all volunteers um, except for our uh, executive secretary who is who is a full time employee, yep. and um, Karen does a, a wonderful job of keeping it all together. Um, but you know, we we've all only got so much time to devote to it, so um, um, we just got to rip into it in our spare time. Right, right. Uh, another thing that's been in the news the last few weeks, um, I wonder if you have any sort of thoughts on it, is uh, Air New Zealand. Um, saying that there's not the number of experienced commercial pilots around in the, within New Zealand or New Zealanders and they're now looking at overseas pilots to come in. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Um, in, in my opinion that crisis is coming but it's not here yet. Um, I think that <coughs> Air New Zealand has a job to do in marketing itself as an employer of choice. They've never had to. Um, because they've always been spoilt for choice. Yeah. And um, there's lots of New Zealand trained pilots that head offshore to work. Yeah. Um, partly um, because they want to, partly because they, for whatever reason, don't want to work for Air New Zealand. Um, and there, there are a number of those. Yeah. Um, and I think that Air New Zealand has a job to do themselves, marketing themselves to, to those um, graduates, male and female, yeah. um, who who make excellent airline pilots and in fact we have a number that have trained through our aero club that are working for 
um, Royal Brunei for Emirates um, and, and um, Jetstar and uh, Qantas Link sort of activities and um, you know many many airlines yeah. um, offshore yeah. and so I think New Zealand has a resource there that that that, that is untapped um, because they've never had to market themselves as the employer of choice in New Zealand because <coughs> a lot of people coming into the flight schools see them as being the dream yeah, yeah. Um, but you know there are as they go through the system um, a lot of these kids young adults um, start to see that there are other opportunities out there and you know other airlines do make it known um, that they have career paths and <coughs> aviation employment is always very cyclic right now um, the demand for pilots is very high yeah. and yes the number of pilots available with the required experience is low um, but it's not exhausted and some of that has to do with the pullback on government funding for flight training yep. so effectively the number of new students going into flight training has dropped from somewhere around about 280 a year into down to probably about 150 160 and <coughs> it's a two-year diploma and after they graduate um, they've probably got two years of internship type work if you like as instructors or whatever before they're um, of interest to the airlines right. so what's happened with the government reduction in funding the number of students coming into the system is lower but the reduction in funding only happened at the beginning of 2012 so what we're seeing now is because there's less students coming in there's less instructor jobs so we have a number of new instructors sitting around who can't get jobs yep. and because the number of instructor jobs has dropped the number of instructors coming through the system to be ready for the airlines has dropped and <coughs> the real effect of that won't truly be felt until about another 18 months time and and that um, that is when the airlines will start to find it really difficult to find pilots right. I, I don't believe that the pool is is that empty right now but it's going to be yeah. if the current demand continues and the only thing that will stop that, according to the forecast from Boeing and Airbus for new aircraft, um, is another economic collapse or, um, you know, God forbid, another sort of 9-11 type event that yeah. will severely impact aviation. Yeah. Um, but certainly the demand is, is higher than it's ever been right now and the forecast demands are such that worldwide the flight training industry cannot provide enough pilots for the airline's wow. forecast. Yeah. That's actually quite positive in, in, in a way isn't it that's great well it's an exciting time to get in but you know the trick with aviation is to get your first job yeah and once you get that um you're away yeah and and most flight schools have a very high percentage of people going through their system get jobs at Waikato Aero Club we have about 85 percent historically okay. um who do get jobs flying <coughs> um the other 15 percent um people that lose enthusiasm lose the dream um, or aren't motivated to yep. get off their bum and go find the job you know they'll sit around and say oh, I'm qualified someone must want to hire me well it doesn't work like that yeah. you know we've got pilots working in Australia and Papua New Guinea um, dropping parachutes flying into mines rounding up cattle in the outback um, as well as the ones working as traditional instruct following the instructor path yep. um, 
through to through to the career at various other flight training establishments. We have some of our own trained ones working at Waikato, yeah. um, but you know a number of them are working, for example, at CTC and other flight schools around yeah. around New Zealand. So, do you have many of your um, graduates go on to agricultural aviation as well? Very few. Um, the demand for pilots into that career path is very low. Yeah. Um, it's a very small number, you know, probably five a year or something like that nationwide. Right. Um, and they tend to be um, males that have grown up on farms, watching the top dressing aircraft, yeah. dust dad's farm or uncle's farm or whoever's farm they're on. And, and they get, you know, they get the urge to do that. Um, and yeah, that's that's a very different career path. I mean, really, they need a bare a commercial pilot license, and <clears throat> then typically they go and drive the loader for two years, yep. and that gets them inducted into the safety systems that are required in modern agricultural aviation. So they learn about fuel, they learn about loading, they learn about being careful around the aircraft, they learn about um, the farm airstrip um, safety assessments, yep. and. <coughs> obviously they um, they watch the ag pilots flying and then after a couple of years of driving the loader and flying the aircraft on ferries say from an airfield to a farm or from the farm back to the airfield um, then they, you know they just sort of quietly get more and more air time and then they start you know their very intense training for for ag flying which is very demanding yes. I yeah. didn't realise those guys are doing 130 knots 150 feet off the ground spreading fur. In, in the modern and the crest coast, and that's yeah. that's fast, man. When you're that close to the ground, yeah, so definitely. It's it's highly demanding. They don't look like they're going that fast, but that's that's what they're doing. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Again, we had a very interesting young eagles presentation from Super Air, and came over and and showed us what it's all about, and showed us a video and explained how fast they're going and how much they carry and okay. all the requirements and fatigue management and all the rest of it. it was really interesting really interesting stuff and, and, and the young eagles that were there that day were, were totally wrapped yeah and, and it was a big eye opener but um, numbers going into that nah it's pretty low right. really and and we I mean we, we've had one in the last eight years go okay. through our system right yeah. they are sort of uh, once they get a patch they stay there for life don't they really almost <laughs> yeah they don't move around much because <laughs> yeah. they all know each other and yeah. you know it's all yeah, friendly competitors, I think. Yeah. Um, but <coughs> yeah, the one who did train with us is now working for a different company than than what he started with. But um, yeah, I think they they get pretty entrenched, and and you know they've got their farms that they do, and they yeah. know them, and they know where all the wires and everything else are, which is really important. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and you know that industry's changed too now because everything's GPS based, so they fly their patterns up and down the paddocks according to what the GPS tells them. Yeah. <coughs> And the coverage is a lot better for it. So. Yeah, yeah. It's actually interesting um, in terms of commercial pilots. Most people would just automatically think of airline pilots, and the airline pilots, the planes can basically fly themselves these days. <laughs> uh, and a lot of these modern airliners. But with the the top dressing guys, it really is almost like an, an elite kind of flying, isn't it? It's a, a step above most commercial pilot skill level I would imagine absolutely those guys are very highly skilled and and to be able to do that for 12 to 14 hours a day um, in the summer you know in the fruit spreading season is, is just um, mind-blowing yeah. really yeah. Um, but you know 
the airlines are now starting to realise that that they don't just need aircraft operators; they need pilots. And one of the um, one of the things that's really shown that up was the the Air France incident in the Atlantic, where um, yeah, basically they stalled the aircraft and, and failed to recognise what had happened, yeah, um, which yeah. is basic basic flying. And yeah. um, uh, you know, there's a realisation that when when things turn to custard that you still got to be able to fly the aircraft. You can't just push the Paris button and sit back with your arms folded and do the systems monitoring that you do when you're flying. Yeah. There is still a requirement for stick and rudder skills, even in the heavy metal, highly automated um, environment that we have now. And, yeah. and you know the the Qantas guys um, that had the problem with the with the um, A380 yeah. showed that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and there's been various examples over the years where airliners have survived. Um, because of the stick and rudder skills of the pilot, and um, you know when all the automated systems fall over, they can still get it on the ground safely. Yeah, exactly. And and you know the the A320 into the Hudson was was another prime example oh, of that. Absolutely. So um, <clears throat> there's sort of starting to be an awareness that um, you know flight deck monitors are are fine, but you still need some basic flying skills yeah. for. Um, the very rare event when it turns to custard, yeah. so that you can get all your passengers on the ground um, in one piece, and and you know you might trash parts of the aircraft in the process, but the main thing is that um, if not all, then most people walk away. Exactly. I think that uh, Hudson River incident wow, with Sully Sullenberger yep. was actually a really good advertisement for um, pilot skills and, and and experience. It was. Uh, you know, the public don't really think about who's sitting up the front most of the time when they get on a plane. Yep. But when you see something like that happen and the pilot can use his experience and skills to get everybody down safely, that's fantastic. Yep. And, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, it's much longer ago, but um, United with a 747-400 out of Honolulu when they, they lost the cargo door and, yep. and um, tragically lost some passengers through the engines out of business class and stuff like that. Yep. When they ran the simulations on that, they determined that it was not possible for the pilot to get that back on the runway. Um, and he did, but he was a very experienced recreational pilot and a very experienced glider pilot. And um, he brought all of those skills to bear to get that 747 back on the ground. Right. right. And, <clears throat> you know, those that weren't actually um, killed in the incident um, all survived. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, that's stunning. And it, it's just, you know, I mean, the old 74400. <clears throat> was highly automated for its time, but it's not as automated as as the modern triple uh, sevens and Airbuses and all the rest of them. Yep. So, um, but it still shows that you know when it all goes wrong, <clears throat> you've got to rely on flying skills. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, um, yep. You know that's yeah. So with the uh, RNZAC, how do you guys uh, sort of present yourselves to the public? I know that in the old days you used to have your own annual air show, uh, the, the RNZAC pageant, which seems to have disappeared behind all of the Warburg shows and stuff these days, but um, you know, how do you guys get out to the general public? We don't, and, and that's something that, that um, once we've sort of got our service to clubs thing, or actually you know, made, that, made our clubs more aware of, of what we actually do and how they benefit, um, that's probably a next step. Yep. But again, um, we will do that most likely with an emphasis on, on young eagles and, and yep. promoting people into aviation. Um, I don't see air shows as being part of that. 
but <coughs> this year's air safari around New Zealand, um, in which we had 30-odd aircraft, um, was dedicated towards the Young Eagles thing, and, and we got a bit of publicity going around that at the towns that we stopped at, yep. um, and we'll be doing that again uh, in 2016, and we'll be stopping at different towns, so we kind of spread it around a bit. Right. But, you know, this year we took in um, Hokitika and Wanaka, Dunedin, um, Timaru, Kaikoura, and um, Paraparam, New Plymouth, Wutianga, wow. <laughs> Tauranga, and Gisborne, um, and Motueka, where we finished. Uh, I'm sure I've left a couple off the list, but <coughs> by taking, you know, um, a swarm of 30 odd aircraft into those places um, and generating a little bit of publicity around those um, and, and, you know, getting the people in there who have an interest in, in, in looking at what aviation might have to offer as a sport or a career yep. um, is one of the ways we do it. And we have a hell of a lot of fun in the process. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's pretty fun. It's awesome. It is. <laughs> and, and everybody who's involved with it, you know, vows and declares they'll come back to the next one. So so it's, it's, um, it's a good thing to do and it's all run on a voluntary basis with highly skilled people. Um, so, you know, we have airline people involved and all the rest of it um, that give their time to making sure that it's safely run um, and, and a good, fun event. Um, so, yeah, I think that our, our promotional activities will be um, more in line with um, getting young people into it and also, <coughs> excuse me, the RPLs um, coming in a little bit later in life as well as the traditional, you know, PPLs, which is getting quite expensive now yep. <clears throat> although we can use LSA aircraft now to train up to PPL which means that we're operating basically on micro light costs right. um, but using professional instructors right. okay. and uh, um, and so you know that's that's an avenue that's open to our clubs as well so you know we've got quite a lot of work to do within our own system um, and getting things right and and getting the promotion thing um, going so that the, the clubs that are associated with Flying New Zealand or Royal New Zealand Aero Club, um, you know, do benefit and flourish. Yeah. And it's actually a, a point that a lot of people get confused about. What's Flying New Zealand and what's RNZAC? Royal New Zealand Aero Club is the body and Flying New Zealand is our brand. Oh, right. So um, that's kind of how we do it. So a lot of our promotions are done under the Flying New Zealand banner, which is, you know, it's a little more modern and, and it's a little bit less of a mouthful than than the Royal New Zealand Aero Club, but yep. the, the Royal Charter and the history uh, factors that are very important to us. Um, you know, you just got to preserve the heritage, yep. and and behind all your modern stuff that you do, um, you know, you've got to bear in mind the history and and what's behind it, yep. um, and and all of those people that that built the organisation, you know, from its inception, and um, you know, just keeping those things going. But we also have to recognise that things change. Yes. And and the change into the modern um, LSA and microlight aircraft is is wonderful, in terms of being able to keep recreational aviation going in a in a in a more and more cost prohibitive environment. So it's brought it back to um, to being available to most people who want to have a crack at it. Yep. And and it's important that we do those things going forward. How far back does the Royal New Zealand Aero Club go? Does that go right back to the original New Zealand Aero Club from 1910? Um. Yeah. To be honest, I'm not quite sure exactly how the roots of that work, um, but it's it's certainly been around um, a very long time, yeah. um, and 
you know, you, you sort of go back to the Auckland Aero Club days, um, which was started in the late 20s. Yes. And actually Waikato was a spin-off of Auckland Aero Club and they gave us our first three aircraft right. um, around about 1931 or 32. And, and Waikato Aero Club started in its own right in 1933, so this is our 80th anniversary this year. Right. And, um, and so to help celebrate that, we're having the, the, the central region competitions at Hamilton Airport on the 9th of November, Saturday oh. the 9th. Um, and we'll, we'll celebrate accordingly that evening. Since no one will be driving or flying anywhere, we're all staying in motels. <laughs> so, um, so that's that's really good. So we'll have you know the clubs from Tauranga, Antiquity, New Plymouth, uh, Takara, and um, and you know just kind of everything south of Auckland and, and, and Taupo. Yeah. Um, so they all sort of turn up, and we all compete against each other, and and then have a couple of quiet ones on Saturday night. And, <laughs> Sounds like a good day. Hand out a bit of ribbing about who did what. So, yeah, it's 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 excellent. So, I, I know in the past the Waikato Aero Club has had uh, public open days, sort of small little shows where there's a bit of display flying and yeah, and you can look around. Are you guys still doing that? Or we do. We haven't done one for a couple of years. Um, but again, the regulatory environment about around doing that kind of stuff is prohibitive. If we have more than 250 people turn up, it's an aviation event. Yep. And that means that you have to go through a whole lot of formal processes. You can't just take off and go for a rip around the airfield, make a bit of noise, um, and have lots of people go, ooh, ah. Yep. Um, so, and one of the problems with that is when you organise an event like that, an open day, um, you have no idea how many people are going to turn up. Yeah. Yep. So, we've been fortunate um, and that when we have organised them, we've had a steady stream of people through the gate all day. And we've probably never had any more than about 150 there at any one time on the airfield. Right. Um, so, you know, legally we're, we're OK. Yeah. But if 500 turned up, we'd, we'd be in trouble. Right. Um, right. And then you have to get, you know, everything sort of organised through CAA and, and all of the traffic management stuff around the airfield. Oh, and true, it, it yeah. goes on and on. So. Um, we, we're kind of looking at what we'll do and also the cost of getting aircraft you know I mean the last time we did it we had the vampire come up from New Plymouth and um, Brett Emini was wonderful only charged us for the fuel but it cost three grand for the fuel right. just to have that one aircraft right. there yeah. um, and that was that was um, and we had a gold coin donation on the on the gate, and, and that was more money than we got through the gold coin donations. Right, so yeah. then we had all the other bits and pieces of, of display flying that, that happened. So, you know, it's, it's quite a cost um, yeah. to do that. And, um, you know, I mean, we, our club volunteers obviously take care of security and marshalling and keeping people behind the, the show lines and all the rest of it. But um, it's, it's a mission and it costs a lot of money and um, yeah, we just kind of have to think about better ways of doing that. Yeah. Um, so and perhaps smaller, more regular type things. But but everybody wants to see a warbird flying or hear a jet go past, or and and that's prohibitively expensive now because you know really the nearest warbirds are at Ardmore. So yeah. if we want to get the Harvards down or whatever, you know that's yeah, spendy. Yeah. And yeah, these days, you know, the Euro clubs just don't make enough money to justify that. And um, and the cost of operating the aircraft means that the people who own them are less disposed now 
to um, to just jump in and come and do you a favour because yeah. it costs them so much. So it's a challenge. Um, at, at Waikato, we're just kind of thinking about what we might do next, and we thought about having one for our 80th, and you know, you know, gee, the cost is pretty high, and what yeah. are we going to get out of it? Yeah. Um, so it's about promoting ourselves in smarter ways, really. Um, and the smartest way you can promote aviation is to get someone into an aeroplane and take them for a fly. Yeah. And and so we're, we're looking at doing more things like that. Um, rather than having 500 people turn up to an air display and all they really want to see is a loud aircraft fly upside down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then they go away and we never see them again. Exactly. So we're, we're yeah. more interested in doing things that will bring people in and keep them in um, and getting them into the seat of an aircraft. Right. Um, is, is one of the things that works really well and you know we have um, our, our trial flight options and our starter pack options for people that want to come and have a taste of it and yeah. see whether they like it before they start spending lots and lots of money and then find they don't like it yeah. um, and they make wonderful uh, Christmas presents and birthday presents and all that sort of thing and most aero clubs around New Zealand run similar sorts of things so you know they, they just do it for cost or slightly less than cost yeah. just to give someone a taste of it and then yeah. Hopefully they'll come back and learn to fly. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, interesting the whole world of aero clubs, isn't it? It's it is something going it on is. all the time. It is, and every aero club's different because you know you've still got some clubs, um, you know, in the more remote areas where there's you know there's three or four guys and one or two aircraft and <laughs> yeah. and uh, and out they go and do it. But the important thing is that they're doing it, and the important thing is that you know from from flying New Zealand's perspective that we organise. Um, support for them and um, give them opportunities to um, to move forward and, and bring new people in, so that they, you know, can we can all share the the fun and the passion and the, and, and you know what flying's all about. Which is there's nothing like it, you know. Yeah, it's just freedom. There's yeah, there's airspace boundaries, but there's no lines down the middle of the road, you know. Exactly. And, yeah. and you do have to look out the window and make sure that there's no other aircraft anywhere near you, because there's no other way of knowing if they're there or not. Yeah. I mean, you've got collision avoidance systems these days, but a lot of aircraft are not fitted with the transponders that that those systems see. Yeah. Um, so you know, you've still got to watch where you're going and be totally aware. And and even for the amateur pilots, you've got to be professional in how you do it. Yeah. And um, and that's why the training is so intense. And that's why it's not instant gratification. And that's why you know we struggle to attract um, the the Gen Y and the Gen Zs and the Gen Xs yeah. um, into aviation. So. But it's a, yeah. But those who get into it just love it. Yeah. But you can't just sit down and spend five minutes learning how to play the game and then you're away. You know, it just doesn't work like that. That's right. That's right. Uh, um, one actual aspect I was going to bring up is um, in the recent couple of years there have been a couple of aero clubs that have folded, haven't there? Yep. Um, and that must be a bit of a worry for the smaller clubs that um, trying to keep them going because of the the lack of interest in the clubs. And how, how does RNZ AC try and support those smaller clubs like that? Well, ultimately, it, <coughs> it depends on how much help the club um, wants because they're all individual entities. Yep. And um, RNZ AC does not exist to tell you how to run your club. Yep. We're, a, we're a resource and, um, um, you know, we do you know, a lot of the work that behind the scenes that, that we talked about earlier um, but but we're not 
a governing body in the sense that we can walk in there and say, hey, you guys aren't doing it right, you need to do this, this and this. Yep. Um, we do offer to help. Um, and, you know, every club has its own committee and every committee has its own individuals and some of those are disposed to asking for help and some of them are not. Yep. And, and there's no reason to change that. Um, but it is disappointing to see um, clubs getting into, into strife. And um, in the end, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably true but harsh to say that, um, you know, that you've got to read the writing on the wall and move with the times a little bit. And you, and you can't run an aero club on the same basis that you ran it on 30 years ago because the model doesn't work anymore. Everything's changed, including the types of aircraft that people want to fly or can afford to fly. Yeah. And so you've got to move with that. And... Um, you know, it's difficult to operate in an environment where you have debt, for example. So if you um, borrow money to buy your aircraft, you know, you, then you have to charge more for it because you've got to pay the interest on the loan. Yeah. And at Waikato, we're fortunate we own all our assets. Um, we don't owe anybody any money. Right. And, um, you know, we've got a bit of cash in the bank. So we can survive the tough times that, that we're going through at the moment. And, and perhaps are just seeing the end of now, things are starting to to look up a bit yep. um, but those clubs that are not in a position to, to survive like that find it really tough yep. and we do have people on our NZAC um, either on the executive or that we can shoulder tap that, that have the skills to help clubs um, through those situations and again it's, it's something that as, as a parent body we have to promote more that that service is available that right. that advice is available those skills are available from people who've been there, done that, and found ways to make it work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And everybody's different because every club structure is different. Yeah. So, you know, we have to be prepared to offer that advice, but ultimately if the individual clubs choose not to take it, um, then there's, there's little we can do. Yeah. 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 It, it seems awfully sad when a community loses its era club or, or it, it's, it's aviation hub really in a community because, uh, you know, what's what's there for the future generations in that community yeah although you know there tends to be a bit of a phoenix element to it you know um you know i mean for example very sadly new plymouth aero club um had to go into receivership earlier this year um but there are a number of individuals down there um who who are getting together and and talking about you know reviving things um and making associations and stuff um, that will help them to make it work, and albeit it will be a much smaller operation for, for the foreseeable future. Yep. Um, the fact that they're looking at resurrecting something out of the ashes is extremely encouraging, it and is, we're yeah. pretty excited about that. And um, you know, we'll be doing whatever we can to <coughs> help them get up and running. Um, so, you know, it's yeah, as hard and as harsh as it is when things like that happen. Um, what will come out of that will be a model that um, is smaller but more resilient um, and probably um, more attuned to the modern times. Yep. 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 Do, do the aero clubs, um, or particularly your aero clubs, do you still have the really old-timer guys who have done it all, flown everywhere, you know, that everyone loves to sort of congregate around in the bar and, uh, you know... It, you learn from these older guys? You have yeah, those? we do. Yeah, yeah, we do. And um, 
and they're a very valuable part of um, of of who your aero clubs are. Yeah. And um, you know, for example, at Waikato, um, two of our older guys, Mike Cumming and Ken Derbyshire, who are actually our co-patrons. Um, you know, guys that that physically um, helped to build our lodge on Great Barrier Island back in the seventies. Right. And and there's a lot of stories that can't be um, aired publicly about you know, <laughs> events that happened around that uh, and, and local life on the island and, and, and all those sorts of things that I'm sure you can imagine yep, um, yep. and you know just the history of the things that, that they did and the places they went and um, the stuff that they used to do and the stunts they used to get up to which you know you probably end up um, on the carpet for at CAA these days because yeah. um, someone will ping you and someone's got a camera on their phone and, and um, you know, but stories about, you know, leaving you know, um, tyre imprints on the roof of cars and things like that, um, <laughs> which, you know, must have been a hell of a lot of fun, but in uh, this day and age, you, you just you wouldn't, wouldn't dream of going anywhere near that sort of activity. But, um, yeah, lots of stories and, um, you know, Really good to sit down and have a quiet hour with those guys and just and just you know, explore the history if you like and some of the deeds <coughs> and some of the bad guys that used to be around and some of the good guys that used to be around and there's yeah. some real rat bags back in the day and there yeah. still are one or two rat bags around who fly but um, but yeah just just yeah things were a lot more liberal back in those days than they are now you know where everything is so regulated and so monitored and there's always someone with a camera somewhere um, willing to um, do the public spirited thing and report anything that doesn't look right yeah. so yeah yeah, a little bit of that sort of I'm sure those things still happen um, here and there yeah. but um, you don't tend to hear about them so much anymore maybe in 10 years time they'll start to trot out the fireside stories you know <laughs> my contemporaries once we start turning 70 and <laughs> You start talking about some of those things. It um, must be very tempting for the young sort of 20-year-old pilots who are under all these new regulations to hear these stories and think, oh, geez, it would have been good to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, you know, we impress on them pretty strongly that yeah. if they want to kill themselves, they should go and find some other club to fly at. <laughs> yeah. You know, because um, it is risky. And, and these things, you know, whilst they talk about them in a cavalier fashion, um, most of them were done by highly, highly skilled pilots, not yeah. not just your average um, club pilot with two or three hundred hours under their belt. You know, these were guys that were doing ag flying or commercial yeah. flying or whatever, and were just out for a rip in the weekend yeah. and, and you know flying their own aircraft that they were totally familiar with. And, and um, you know, even even uh, the previous director of civil aviation, John Jones, will tell you a few stories about the things he did um, that if if civil aviation knew about um, he would never have become the director and probably would have ended up behind bars somewhere you know, but, um, you know back in the 70s and 60s and stuff um, when you could do that stuff and get away with it yeah. and you know there was only two and a half million people in New Zealand then so there wasn't that many people around to see you do it anyway exactly, and they certainly yeah. didn't have a phone camera um, and other recording devices that you, you, you have available now so yeah. So, yeah, interesting times. Yeah, definitely. With your students that you're putting through the um, the flying school side of things, 
what sort of percentage are local Waikato people and what sort of percentage are from outside of Waikato? Um, still mostly from the Waikato. Okay. Um, yeah, we do get a few from, from outside um, the region. Uh, and a lot of that is word of mouth based. Yep. Um, <coughs> um, a lot of um, current airline pilots, you know, if, if someone's wanting to be um, a pilot and they talk to family friends or whatever and they talk about where's the best places to train, yep. um, that works very well for us. Yep. Um, and it's one of the reasons that we don't have to have a high public profile in the Waikato right. um, is that <coughs> we get quite a lot of really good candidates who, who talk to people about how you train. I mean, because there's lots of benefits in going to a flight school associated with an aero club. You know, for example, the RNZAC competitions um, run on an annual basis. So at Waikato, we have our club comps in August. And if you win your event, and there's all kinds of fun events like throwing dummy life rafts out of aircraft onto a target yep. and bombs um, out the window and you know spot landing competitions and forced landing competitions and navigation and aerobatics so if you win your event at club level you go to represent your club at the regional competitions which this year are in Hamilton like I said before on the 9th of November yep. and that's when all the other clubs from the region there's five regions in New Zealand for flying New Zealand there's, there's northern which is down to Auckland, then the central, which is you know Tauranga, Hamilton, New Plymouth, and there's Cook Strait, which is you know Wanganui, Hawke's Bay, um, and then there's um, Alpine, which is you know Nelson down to just past Christchurch, and then there's Lakes, which is the southern part. So yeah. the regions have their own comps in November, and then the winners from the regional competitions go on to represent your region at the nationals, which is at the end of February in this year. That uh, sorry, next year, 2014. Um, that's in Tauranga. <coughs> so um, so the, the, the full-time guys that are training with us get, get to enter in those competitions. We encourage them to um, because it really sharpens their stick and rudder skills yeah. and how they think about flying and possible emergency situations because a lot of it's based around emergency drills. Yep. Um, and um, so that's, that's a wonderful opportunity for them. And they're also, um, you know, we have in our pilot lounge during the day at any given day of the week we have the air, air ambulance pilots sitting in there and the charter pilots um, you know and, and Sunny Air and Air Gisborne and all those guys plus our own club member airline pilots that are on days off or on leave from flying in Bahrain or wherever yep. and they just sit there and chew the flat and, flat and talk about flying and, and you know how they've coped with certain situations and and all of those conversations just rub off on our student pilots and you yeah. don't get that in a, in a dedicated private flying school because right. all you're surrounded by is instructors and students. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then we've got the lodge on Great Barrier Island and we have club trips here and there and, and um, you know, we, we always go to Warbirds over Wanaka or or, um, or the Omaka Air Show. Um, yeah. You know, we have three or four aircraft go to that. So, you know, the full-time students are encouraged to join in those things and it... And it, it gives them a far more rounded um, approach to flying and yeah I mean there's an element of the sausage factory to what we do um, because th there's, a, there's an awful lot of knowledge to be acquired and an awful lot of flying skill to be required and you've just got to chew through that yeah. and get that done but we like to think that we, we round our guys out and girls out um, considerably more than 
an average and, and you know teach some of those airmanship things that you don't get out of a textbook um, and and we find that 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 because of that our pilots are very well accepted by future employers who are other flight training schools and then ultimately the airlines yes yep. yeah. great great stuff well i think i've probably uh, <laughs> got everything that i wanted to know about right. now so um if there's any sort of final uh statement you want to no i mean i just you know flying's fun and um yeah there's a lot of red tape and stuff but you know at the end of the day you once you're done with all that, you get in an aeroplane, you turn the key and you go flying and it's just the most wonderful, wonderful piece of freedom you can have. And, um, you know, done safely. Yep. Um, it's still a heck of a lot of fun. And, and, you know, the more we can encourage people to have a look at it, either as a sport and recreation activity, which is very important to our NZAC, um, or as a career, we just want to see people in aviation. Yep. Yeah, so it's, that's great. And thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to have a chat. No problem at all. It's, it's uh, really interesting to listen to you. So thank you very much. Hey, thanks, Dave. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Hope.